0: It was December the 17th, 1903. Orville was at the controls of this little bi-wing airplane. They started up the gasoline engine. Soon it had warmed up and was running smoothly, and they turned it loose, and it rolled down this wooden rail. It lifted off. It would fly for 12 seconds, about 31 miles an hour, and it would cover 120 feet before it touched down softly in the sand. It was the first time in history that a craft heavier than air, under its own power, had flown. Orville and Wilbur had conquered the air and had a flying machine. That day it would make four flights. The final flight would be by Wilbur, and it would cover about 852 feet and last for 59 seconds. The day of aviation was born. What an invention. They did not know at that point exactly what it would do or what it would mean and yet they understood it's gonna change the world and it did. Now it's important to understand that how that day came about was about over an eight-year period for Orville and Wilbur. You see they originally had been inspired by Otto Lilienthal. He was a glider pilot in Germany. He loved to hang glide and he was trying to create a plane and started working with creating a kind of a hang glider. He'd been developing more and more models. He'd go up on the hills in Bavaria and jump off and glide. And he'd done that for a number of years. There were lots of pictures of him that going out everywhere. And then one day he stalled about 50 feet above the earth and he crashed and it killed him. But those pictures and what he accomplished had inspired so many different people around the world. Two of those to be inspired were Orville and Wilbur Wright. In 1896, they began reading and learning and writing to the Smithsonian, gathering what materials they could, speaking to the people they could. And for four years, they read and learned and talked. They would watch the birds soaring. But finally, in 1900, it came time to begin. They built themselves a small glider. And they decided to go down to Kitty Hawk, the outer banks on North Carolina. It's a little bit from islands that sort of break the ocean from the shore. They're on North Carolina. And there's all these sandy beaches. There's Kitty Hawk, and then there's Kill Devil Hills. These are three hills kind of around there that are just lovely for climbing up and kind of jumping off. They went to Kitty Hawk because there was constant wind, because it was very remote. Only a few fishermen lived out there, and because there was lots of soft sand for you to crash into. And that's why they chose Kitty Hawk, to go there. It was in 1900, September, September the 6th, 1900. 115 years ago that they camped to Kitty Hawk. They came there and they set up a tent. The conditions were incredibly primitive. There was no running water. No, in the end, they, they didn't have a lot of provisions. They mainly ate um, eggs and, and they had tomatoes and biscuits and coffee. It was hard to get a lot of other variety. They set up camp and they began working on this glider. It turned out that that year it became very cold in the fall. The wind was howling. They said, we wanted sand and wind. We got it. It was blowing and they were freezing to death. Two blankets, three blankets. When they had come back in 1901, well, that year they said about every 10 years there's an infestation of mosquitoes. Happened to be 1901. There were so many mosquitoes, they said they blotted out the sun. And it was so hot, you couldn't stay into the covers. And so the mosquitoes were eating you alive. No, living out on Kitty Hawk would not be easy. But they arrived, 1900, with their little glider. And they started jumping off. And, and it actually went pretty well. They got established. They enjoyed the glides. And they thought, this is working. So they went back home there for 1901. And they began building a truly big plane, a big glider. This is what you'd need for an airplane. And they used the tables, the calculations, of Lilienthal and Samuel Langley at the Smithsonian. These were the tables that said, here's the curvature of wings. So they built this plane, they went back in 1901, that summer in July, and the plane did not fly as well as the year before. They were struggling. They finally decided maybe they'd try to flatten out the wings more like they'd done last year on their own and the plane seemed to do somewhat better, but still not good. When they left Kitty Hawk in 1901, what they'd come to realize was all those calculations, all those tables that had been taken for fact were wrong. They were worthless. All the things that people believed They weren't correct. They went home very discouraged and they thought about it and finally decided to do something about it. They built a wind tunnel. What an idea. It was six foot long, 16 inches on every side. They put a fan at one end of it and then they started kind of bending um, hacksaw blades and wood and paper and they wanted to calculate how it was moving with these different curvatures They had to work all day long at the bicycle shop to make a living. And then when they got home, they'd go out there to their shop and work past midnight, day after day, week after week, month after month, trying to make these calculations. They went on four months, and finally, they decided they could build a new wing based on their calculations. And so in 1902, they went back to Kitty Hawk that September. It was a much bigger plane. And again, they now began jumping off the hills, and guess what? It worked so much better. Now they knew they had lift, and the plane was flying. The problem was they didn't have control, and a gust would make the thing, everything turn. And so it was one night that they were there asleep, only Orville wasn't sleeping. He said he had drunk too much coffee. When suddenly he had an idea, sat straight up in bed and said, we need to hinge the rudder on the back. Let's put a hinge on it and it can turn. And they went up the next day and Wilbur agreed to the idea, which was uncharacteristic of Wilbur. And they got up and they hinged the rudder and connected it and suddenly they now could do lift and control, yaw. It solved the problem of control. They flew 1,000 glides that summer, more than anybody ever in history. They improved their skills and they realized they'd figured it out. They got it. They'd done it. When they left in 1902, they knew we will do this. I mean, the only problem they had was they didn't have a gasoline engine. I mean, cars were just being invented, there weren't gasoline engines everywhere. They went home and they talked to their machinist, Charlie Taylor, who worked in the bicycle shop. And he went to work at building, inventing a gasoline engine for them. Now, the next problem was there was no airplane propellers. I mean, that didn't exist. No one knew what a propeller was supposed to look like. You had them on a boat, but not airplanes. And so they tried to figure it out and decided to make one eight and a half feet long. And they would curve it with a twist, something like that in the water. They had no idea if it would work. They made two to turn in opposite directions. And so it was in 1903. They went back to Kitty Hawk with that big glider, but now with a gasoline engine and two propellers. And December the 17th, it went down that little wooden runway and lifted off, and it flew. You know, so often, you and I want to move from imagination to invention. But the way you get from imagination to invention is step by step, day by day, you learn and you grow. It takes time, step by step, day by day. We tend to be an impatient people. We like to go from a vision of what we want life to be to the invention, but that's not how you invent a new future. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Inventing the Future. I love the statement by Alan Kay, the computer scientist who said, it is easier to invent the future than it is to predict it. We all wonder what the future will hold and we'll sit around and talk about it and think about it and try to predict it. But he suggested it might be easier to do something about it and invent the future. As people of faith, we believe that when we are open to the leading of God's Holy Spirit, we use that incredible gift of imagination, and step by step we can invent the future. That's why I love our scripture lesson this morning. Because in our scripture lesson this morning it is so simple, it's short, and yet so profound. It simply says Jesus was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee when he saw Peter and Andrew and said, come, follow me. And it says they left their boats and they followed him. Think about that for a moment. What had happened? This was not the first time that Peter and Andrew saw Jesus. No, he had been there around the Sea of Galilee teaching. People were talking. Jesus had fired their imagination. Who is he? What will you do with him? What could the future look like? They had, their imagination had been fired up. So when the day came, Jesus said, Come, follow me. They made the decision to begin. Step by step, day by day, they would grow until they were ready on that day as we looked at last week to be on the mountain when Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations. They would be ready to invent the future. You and I have been blessed with the gift of imagination. The ability to stand on the sandy dunes and kitty hawk and say, wouldn't it be great if... Why don't we, to use our imagination, but to get to the invention of a future, it'll take step by step, day by day. I want us to think about that this morning. Just two thoughts. First of all, it is step by step, day by day, frame by frame, that God reveals a new truth. That God can help us to see reality in a different way. Because so often we see reality and we're wrong. We miss it. There is a new truth to see. Most of us know the name of Leland Stanford the founder of Stanford University. You know how it was Leland Stanford and his wife, Jane, who had one child, Leland Stanford Jr. He was 15 years old. They were traveling in Italy when he developed typhoid fever, and he died. And after their son died, it was Leland and Jane who said, all the children of California will be our children. They had collected an 800-acre estate at Palo Alto, They had amassed this incredible fortune as he was one of the founders of Central Pacific Railroad. He'd been governor of the state. They were incredibly wealthy, and so they gave their estate and the land and created Stanford University in honor and memory of their son. Well, Leland Stanford was an amazing man. It was in the 1860s and 1870s that he became very interested in horse racing. And he went out and got himself some horses. And he became a part of a fascinating debate at that point in history. People in history said, you know, horses, when they're galloping, when they're running, they always have at least one foot on the ground as they run. But Leland thought, I I don't think so. I think there's got to be a moment when all the feet are off the ground. But that's not what people believed. So Leland Stanford was having a man named uh, Edward Muybridge, who was a photographer photograph his mansion photography in the 1860s and the 1870s was in its infancy but one of those who really had learned how to do it well was Edward Muybridge he's from England and the way they took photography in that day was you would have the box of a camera and you'd have a glass plate with chemicals on it and it'd be dark inside and then you'd pull the lens cap off there was no shutter or f-stop light would come in and would make an image on the plate you might open it up and go 1, one thousand, 2, 2,000, 3, 3,000 and close it back up and hope enough light had come in to create the photograph. Well, he was very good at this. And Leland came to him and said, I want you to photograph my galloping horse and let's see if his feet are always on the ground. And Muybridge said, well, that's a little bit of a problem. If you've got this galloping horse, and we go 1, one thousand, 2, two thousand, three." yeah we're probably not going to get the picture he said you figure it out and so movie bridge went to work the problem was there wasn't enough light getting into the camera and they didn't have a shutter so he took two pieces of wood he got it hooked up with a rubber band and a way to trip it and they put it in front of the lens and it became a shutter very quickly but he knew he needed more light to try to get a picture. And so he went and put white sheets down on the race course, the track. And then he went and got 12 cameras and lined them all up in a row and had a string go out onto the racetrack. And when a horse came running by, he began <laughs> taking lots of pictures. Twelve, to be exact. He then developed the pictures and then decided he would create a machine that could move these pictures quickly. <laughs> right on through a kind of a lens to project it up on a wall. It was 1880 at Stanford's home when he invited his friends who raised horses and some reporters. And that night they were in for a surprise treat when suddenly Edward Muybridge turns on this projector, if you will, and suddenly on the wall they are seeing a galloping horse coming across. It was the first motion picture that we know of in history. Now it would inspire other people like Lumiere in France and Edison here in the United States and they would develop film and projectors and true moving pictures but Edward Muybridge is seen as the father of motion pictures. And the first motion picture ever seen was the galloping horse. And when they looked at it frame by frame, what it showed was there comes a moment when all four legs are off the ground. Up until that point, every painting of horses running would have at least one foot on the ground. The first moving picture to ever be seen changed our perception of reality. It changed what we believed to be true. When the disciples followed Jesus, they perceived him to be the Messiah. And a Messiah was someone who would raise an army, overthrow the Romans, establish the kingdom of Israel just like David. And as they walked with Jesus day by day, step by step, frame by frame, what they saw was something different. There were no armies there were messages about forgiving those who had persecuted you, even dying on a cross. There were all kinds of reaching out to the women and to the poor and, and to the lepers. and They saw something so very different. Their understanding of Messiah and the role of Jesus had to change. There was a new truth to be seen that was different from what they had all believed. And when Jesus was crucified, they believed their ministry was over. And the truth of the matter is, it was just about to begin. It's when you and I follow Christ step by step, day by day, frame by frame, that God helps us to see a new truth, a reality that may be different from what we have perceived. There is no way that a person who has a, a vision, an imagination, gets to an invention without discovering something they never imagined, something that is different from what they expected. So second, to invent the future, it is step by step, day by day, layer upon layer that enables us to invent the future. It's what I wanted you to see about and Wilbur, It was more than going out there and figuring out lift, the curvature of wings that would make a plane fly. They figured that out. That was a step. But then there had to wind up being a motor. And there was a rudder. And there were propellers. And then there was a landing. All these things they had to do, layer upon layer upon layer, in order to have the invention. I know that some of you are aware of 3D printing. I gotta be, I've been having fun with this series and trying to learn about lots of inventions. And one of the things that I had heard about was 3D printing, but I really hadn't paid any attention to it. 3D printing really kind of has been going on now for about 20 years, but it's only been the last five years it's really come into its own being. And now it's becoming more of a commercial thing for, for people like you and me, for businesses, and then for real research scientists. 3-D printing. Printing used to be ink dots being put onto a paper. Ink dots on a paper, that's how you print it. But 3-D printing, you get to choose the material. It can be plastic, glass, metal, human tissue, food. You have nozzles that will be moving on a platform. And it makes a layer... And then a layer, and then a layer, and layer after layer after layer, it is putting down whatever the material is you've put into this thing, and it is building up an object, a beautiful new object. And it can create almost anything it can create a broken handle on a coffee pot, it can create an organ. They're getting close to creating human organs with tissue that'll be put into a special place that all begins to grow. It's amazing what they're doing with this 3D printing. We are so close that soon your smartphones, and I know that every one of you has one in here. Thank you for turning them off. We have these smartphones. We all have them. And soon they will have scanners, a digital scanner on your smartphone. And you'll be able to scan any object you want and then you'll take that digital file to download it into the printer and whatever material you've then put into the printer, that's what will get created in front of you. Layer by layer by layer, it will build up that object. And it's just like something you'd think out of science fiction, only it's actually happening right now. It's how you build something in the future. One layer at a time. For the disciples, they were going to follow Jesus step by step, day by day. And they'd start to see Jesus and the way he treated the lepers, and then the way he treated the women, and then see the feeding of the 5,000, and then see the transformation, and then see Jesus crucified, and then the resurrection, layer after layer after layer. They would be gaining a new insight. And because of the experiences with step-by-step, day-by-day, year-by-year, they would be ready when Jesus takes them up on the mountain, as we saw last week, and says, Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. What a commission. They wouldn't have been ready back here with the imagination. No, the invention happens three years later. Here's the future you can have to go do something they were ready because of all the experiences through the time. What it takes is time. And we as a culture are not patient people. We like to imagine and invent. But to invent the future takes step by step, day by day. It takes time. And the only way you continue on when there's good times and hard times and successes and failures is if you walk that road in faith. Now we have said faith is not ascribing to a certain set of beliefs. Faith is trusting in God's grace, God's good will towards us, His children. It's when you and I are willing to trust in mystery. When we're willing to trust and we don't see and understand, when the nights are dark, when you and I can have faith, trusting in God's love towards us, then we begin to build layer on top of layer on top of layer as we walk step by step, day by day, through the years. We are growing, we are learning, we are preparing to be able to hear God tell us how to invent the future. As I was studying these 3D printers, I came across a fascinating story of a man named John Peterson. John Peterson lives in Augusta, Georgia. And he was in Augusta, Georgia, and he decided he wanted to build his own 3D printer. Went online, ordered the parts, got the parts to build his 3D printer. And because he got online, he started searching out of the things, and he came across an organization called e E-Nable. Enable, but it's E-NABLE. It's only two years old. started in 2013. It was started by a carpenter in South Africa and a prop builder in the United States, someone who built props for plays. And these two guys living 10,000 miles apart meet online and there's a child in South Africa who doesn't have a hand and they want to create a prosthetic hand. And so together they start trying to think about this and creating a digital file. How would we do this? How do you make it look right? And they created this digital file that they put into their 3D computer. And layer by layer by layer, it built the hand, a prosthetic, that could move and function. You know, a prosthetic hand for a child would usually cost somewhere around eight dollars to $10,000. They built it for $25. $25 on their 3D printer. And they were able to give this child and it worked. So then what they did was rather than trying to keep it to themselves and figure out how to make money, they gave it away for free. Open concept. Sharing it and saying, here's the digital file. Can you improve it? Can you make it better? Would you like to build hands for children around the world? And then they started thinking, we could actually build arms below the elbow. It might cost 100 to $125 now. And so they created these digital files. And there are now thousands of people who are a part of ENABLE. They never meet. There's no corporate headquarters. They just get together online, share these digital files, and dream, wouldn't it be great if, why don't we? And they start making it all work. And so now they're building arms layer by layer by layer and hands layer by layer. John Peters, he lives there in Augusta, Georgia he came across the name of Liam Potter, 7 years old. He was born without his left arm down below his elbow. He needed a prosthetic. They could not afford 10 to 15,000 for an arm and a hand. And so it was that he went over to talk with Liam and said, "So what are the things you like?" And Liam said, "I love Star Wars. Like Star Wars." And John thought, "Okay." What if we built a clone trooper arm? Not a stormtrooper arm, because Liam didn't like the bad guys. I want to be one of the good guys. The clone trooper. What if we built him a really cool clone trooper arm? And not a prosthetic that tries to look natural, you can hide it. No, let's just say, you got the coolest arm in school. And so he went to work on the digital file and a friend who is also a prop maker there in Augusta, Georgia. How do you paint it and work on it? It took him about three months and cost him $125 with his 3D printer. And they created this arm and hand that move and functions. It was on a Saturday morning at at a show at a movie theater Liam and his mom were going to be coming to the movie to see Star Wars. And John had already arranged for people dressed in character as troopers to be there, all looking like the 501st. They were all ready when Liam came in, and they presented him suddenly with his new arm. This kid was so thrilled. They had a helmet for him. They had his arm for him. And now he, I mean, just immediately he could pick up a glass. He could use a knife to cut his meat, button his shirt, ride a bicycle. I mean, suddenly all these things he could not do. And he walked out and this kid was so excited and so happy. And they went to John and they said, so how does this make you feel? And he said, it feels so great to know that you just changed a child's world. You helped to invent a new future. And so can we. God has given us this incredible gift of imagination. But it's when step by step, day by day, frame by frame, we let God open our eyes to a new reality, a new truth. It's when step by step and day by day and layer by layer, we continue to walk in faith that we grow to the point that God can use us to not only change ourselves, but to change the world. Jesus said, come, follow me. The disciples decided it was time to begin And they left their boat and followed him. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.